Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. In this particular podcast, we're looking at two issues to do with women in Islam, modesty and polygamy. Muslims frequently accuse Christians, Jews and other people of being lewd and sexually provocative because we don't put our women in burqas or niqabs or veils. And they accuse us of allowing our women to go naked. But what they define as naked is showing your face or your neck. And they will frequently show us Catholic pictures of the Virgin Mary with a head covering over her head. To which I ask, well, where's the, where's the burqa or the niqab of Mary wearing? Because she's not wearing that. So according to their definition, they would have to say that she is naked. And this is what is referred to as Islamic modesty, so-called. Here's the problem, though, is Muslims have no agreed idea of what constitutes modesty. Some of them believe in no head covering, wear what you want. Others believe in head covering, a loose head covering called the shayla, which is popular in Iran. Then others believe in the hijab, which covers the head and neck but shows the face. Then others argue for the hijab a mirror, which covers the shoulders as well as the head and neck. And then others for the himar, which covers the chest as well as the head and neck with the same piece of cloth. And after the Iranian revolution of 1979, what was originally popular was the chador, which was a single cloak covering everything except the face and hands. And then some believe in the niqab or veil, which covers everything except the eyes. And then there's the burqa, which covers everything, including the face. So I've listed at least eight contradictory notions of what constitutes modesty and their idea that a woman who's not following one of these is naked, which of course is rather silly. But the answer is actually given in the Quran in chapter 33, verse 59. It says, O prophet, tell your wives and your daughters and the women of the believers to draw their cloaks or veils all over their bodies. That will be better, that they should be known so as not to be annoyed. And Allah is ever oft forgiving and most merciful. So it says, tell them to draw their cloaks all over their bodies. And that's the Islamic mandate. That's what they require. What, that's what they define as modesty. In Genesis 38 in the Bible, it was actually prostitutes who wore veils over their faces and some people like to appeal to pictures of nuns with uh, habits covering their head 
or Mary with a head covering, but how does that translate into burkas and niqabs? Um, and then they quote Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 4 to 15 where he told women to wear head coverings when they did prophesying or reading of scripture in church. Does that mean therefore all Christian women at all times at all times in history must wear head coverings and the answer is no. This was a referring to a specific cultural time where women would wear head coverings during religious ceremonies. An example would be the Vestal Virgins in Rome at the time wore head coverings. And so it was to avoid unnecessary offence. And it was the cultural norm at the time for men to have short hair and women to wear a loose head covering in sacred worship. But to go against cultural norms, Paul says that a woman's hair is a covering anyway in verse 15. And in other parts of the Bible, holy men like Samson had long hair in Judges chapter 13 verses 3 to 5. They also like to quote from 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, and I'll read it. In the same way, but women also adorn themselves in decent clothing, with modesty and propriety, not just with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which becomes women professing godliness through good works. So this is actually referring to women. What is referred to as immodesty here is women that were wearing too much rather than too little. And women that were being immodest in this case were women who were showing off with their fancy clothing and their braided hair. And Ravari saying what's important to be wearing is good works and who you are spiritually on the inside. So it's not a command for women to dress like Muslims. Secondly, define Modesty. Well, even the Muslims can't define what modesty is. They've got eight contradictory theories of what a woman should wear and which of them counts as modesty. So we look at the verdict of science. Should women dress in the Islamic manner? Does it protect them from sexual harassment? and catcalling and lewd comments by men. Is it good for them? Well, the verdict of science has something to say. The Daily Mail, the 18th of July 2007 says, women in hijabs need sunlight or risk illness. And it says that Muslim women in hijabs have a much higher rate of bone deficiencies due to a lack of vitamin D and they have a higher level of rickets disease which also affects Muslim babies because these babies are not getting enough calcium from the breast milk of the mother 
And the BBC News, 5th of February 2001, has an article called Ricketts Upsurge Among UK Asians. And it looks at Muslim female dress is the cause of Ricketts disease. So, if this God of the Quran has commanded women to dress like that, then why is Ricketts disease a problem? It's as if the God who inspired the Quran didn't know this. I'm going to quote from a website called womensmediacenter.com and it's from uh, WMC September the 6th 2012. It's written by a man called Josh Sharia and it's called The Myth of How the Hijab Protects Women Against Sexual Assault. I was only six years old when my family was forced to flee the civil war in Afghanistan for Pakistan in the late 1980s. My sister Nilo who is five years older than me, was enrolled in a Saudi-funded Muslim Brotherhood-inspired public school for Afghan refugees. She, like many Muslim women, wore a simple headscarf. I remember Nilo picking up her tiny bag, wrapping her scarf around her hair, and going to her first day of school. I also sadly remember her coming back from school that day and telling our parents, the guards told me, either you are going to wear the full hijab or wear a chador, or you can't come to school. Her tiny headscarf was no longer enough. The school she was going to was run by arch-conservatives. Nilo was forced to wear the most restrictive form of the hijab, almost exactly like the woman in this image, and it shows an image of a woman in a all-enveloping uh, chador that just shows her face, but carrying on. Things were fine until the next year. When I started school myself, my mother sat me down and told me that from then on, I would have to walk my sister to school every day. I grew to hate it every school day for years as the two of us walked towards Nilo's school, men would stare at her, sizing up her body behind the dark clothes, whispering to each other, making signs with their hands, making catcalls, taunting her, and saying things like how pretty she was, even though the only thing you could see on my sister's body were her eyes. The men who passed us on sidewalks would say demeaning things, things sexual in nature that I was too young to understand. My mum and dad wanted me to walk her to school because if I wasn't with her, who knew what these men would do? I grew up hearing stories about women being groped, punched, even abducted, all while wearing hijabs. The perpetrators were from all ethnic groups and were both Pakistanis and, like us, refugees. The experience left me angry, helpless and traumatised. We never talked about it, 
What she didn't know was that I knew she was emotionally and psychologically hurt. I didn't need her to tell me she was not being protected by her hijab. The tears behind her veil were enough. Those memories came back to haunt me on Tuesday, World Hijab Day. The day celebrates a Muslim woman's right to choose what she wants to wear. The headscarf and more restrictive forms of face and body coverings are widely known as the hijab. Over the centuries, it has become a symbol of conservative Islam and to some, even a defining characteristic of modest and pious Muslim women. While the practice isn't uniform in all countries, wearing the conservative hijab means completely covering all of a woman's hair and in many places even her face with a veil, a pata, a long thin shawl covering the head and upper body, mostly worn in South Asia, a burqa, a sort of shawl with a hood and built-in veil worn in Afghanistan, Pakistan and India, or several other national variations thereof. No parts of a woman's body except her face, hands, feet below the ankles, and sometimes neck are allowed to be seen. In conservative interpretations, great strides in women's rights over the past two centuries have allowed religious women to take some liberties in how they want to dress, yet the dominant response to this by the mainstream conservative religious movement has been to separate the practice from its religious nature and to find reasons to justify not just its observance for piety's sake, but for supposed practical benefits. I'll let an exam an excerpt of an article by a writer named Semima Jaffa Chopra on the popular Muslim issues website Islam101.com explain what's going on. Another benefit of adorning the veil is that it is a protection for women. Muslims believe that when women display their beauty to everybody, they degrade themselves by becoming objects of sexual desire and become vulnerable to men who look at them as gratification for the sexual urge. The hijab makes them out as women belonging to the class of modest, chaste women, so that transgressors and sensual men may recognise them as such and dare not tease them out of mischief. Hijab solves the problem of sexual harassment and unwanted sexual advances, which is so demeaning for women when men get mixed signals and believe that women want their advances by the way they reveal their bodies. And then he, he that's the end of his quotation of them. And then he says that the hijab somehow protects women against sexual harassment and or violence is by no means a minority view. Eminent Islamic clerics like Egypt's Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, widely considered a spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood and much of Sunni Islamic thought, and Ayatollah Sayyid Ali Khamenei, 
the supreme religious and political authority in Iran and one of Shia Islam's main sources of jurisprudence, have endorsed this view. This is not just a false assertion that has no basis in fact, it is also a dangerous one. I know that for a fact because I saw Nilo's hijab fail to protect her for years. I know this because I've seen, heard or read multiple first-person accounts by victims of sexual harassment and sexualized violence who were wearing the hijab when they were attacked. The hijab cannot and will not stop men from assaulting women. Even if the only part of a woman's body that shows is her shadow, deviants will sexualize and fetishize it. Take the example of Egypt where sexual harassment against women has become almost a pandemic, whether they wear the hijab or not. The myth that there's a correlation between the hijab and a low incidence of sexual harassment and violence against women actually systematically victimizes them. Men are doing women a disservice in that they are placing blame on women who don't cover themselves, as well as insinuating that a woman who is attacked while wearing a headscarf somehow did something to deserve it. As with all victim blaming, this prevents women from speaking up about sexual assault. Many mainstream conservative Muslim clerics and pseudo-social scientists like Zach and Naik, um, and then they cite a video which is a must-see for anyone wanting to learn about this issue, openly imply or proclaim that women who don't wear the hijab are calling for sexual harassment and sexual violence. They go so far as correlating a woman's right to wear what she wants in the West with a high incidence of sexualized violence against women there. They conveniently ignore all of the reports on how sexualized violence is underreported in many conservative Islamic societies because of its taboo nature and the stigma associated with it. They ignore the fact that sexualized violence leads to the honor killings of many of the women victims each year. Perverts are perverts. They will sexually harass and commit sexual violence against women who wear the hijab or a miniskirt because they are perverts, not because women have exercised their right to wear what they want. Continuing to perpetuate the myth of the magical hijab only makes the problem grow. It doesn't actually solve anything. For that, we need to be able to openly talk about this problem, raise awareness, educate people, draft laws against it, and have law enforcement agencies that actually act upon criminal complaints against men who carry out these crimes. If that had been in place in the 1980s, maybe Nilo or the millions of other victims like her wouldn't have had to endure the pain she lived with for years. To wear or not to wear the hijab is a personal choice that must be protected. Many women who wear it choose to do so and take joy in their gesture of modesty and piety. This, however, is not about the hijab or women's choice. It's about pseudoscience and misogyny. 
It's about the fact that women who wear the hijab are not any safer than women who don't. It's about the fact that there needs to be real protection for women in Islamic societies, at home, on the streets and in the workplace, not just miracle garments. And here ends the article. A few years ago in Australia, Australians love to think of themselves as freedom-loving people. They're not really. There was going to be an Islamic conference at Byron Bay. Byron Bay is a city in Australia along the beach. And in the beach, many of the women wear bikinis. And because the Muslims chose to have a conference at this place, there were calls to ban the wearing of bikinis during this conference. And that up opened up a whole can of worms. And in the end, they had to back away from it. The local authorities wanted to avoid offending Muslims. So they thought the best way to do it is ban bikinis. But here's the problem. Why stop with bikinis? Isn't wearing a one-piece swimsuit also offensive to Muslims? Isn't walking around with your, your hair uncovered also offensive to these people? And they realised what a ridiculous can of worms they were opening and how arbitrary it was to only go with bikinis. And one man wrote a letter to the newspaper. He said, as an Aussie guy who has known many Muslim men and has many Muslim friends over the years, he said, I can assure you that Muslim men are not offended at the sight of women in bikinis. What they're offended at is their own women wearing bikinis and anyone checking out or ogling their own women. And so they had to back down from that silliness. But once again, it shows you an almost uh, crazy psychiatric controlling of making women dress up modestly, but not men. And as a Catholic, one of the things I find the most offensive and utterly stupid is the comparison they do of the Islamic modesty, so-called dress, with nuns. And they do these comparisons. There's a stupid uh, manga-style comic that shows a nun dressed up in a habit and a Muslim woman. And it says a nun can be covered from head to toe in order to devote herself to God, right? But then if a Muslim girl does the same, why is she oppressed? Well, I found an image that actually answers that question and I'll read it out. It says nuns are few in number. This is because a woman must make a conscious decision to become a nun. A woman who wishes to wear the holy habit must prove herself via a 6 to 12 month trial to determine if she is dedicated enough to become a nun. Nuns remain largely isolated from mainstream society, only leaving their convents to perform charity. A nun takes an oath of celibacy and never engages in sex, not even for procreation. If she breaks the oath, 
The worst that can happen is that she will be excommunicated from the church. A woman may choose to stop being a nun at any time. There is no punishment for leaving the church. Now let's read about Muslim girls. Muslim girls are born into a society with specific and demanding expectations largely created by males who see themselves as superior to them. The hijab is expected to be worn and it is very difficult for a woman to choose not to wear it due to pressure from her society and family. Muslim women put themselves out into mainstream society of their husbands, let them, even if it is a society that is not majority Muslim. Muslim women are sold into marriage, sometimes at a very young age. They are essentially property of their husbands and must obey him. According to many Islamic scholars, husbands have the right to beat and rape their wives. Muslim women are largely seen as baby factories. Infidelity on her part is grounds for death. A Muslim woman who wishes to leave Islam faces the very real possibility of being beaten or killed. So that, my friends, is the difference between a nun and a Muslim woman with a hijab. The nun's habit represents holiness and devotion to God. A woman's hijab is about her sexualization as a sex object that needs to be covered up. And so there is a big, big difference between the two. And to quote the Quran again, in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, A man shall inherit twice as much as a female. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. If a woman commits fornication, confine her to her house until death overtakes her. If two men commit homosexuality, punish them, but if they repent, leave them alone. And the Quran, chapter 4, verse 34, says, Men have authority over women because God has made one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and send them to their beds apart and beat them. So that is the status of women in Islam. As a Catholic, I believe in the Catholic veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother of all Christians, and it gives reverence and respect to women in general because it sees womanhood and motherhood as a holy, pure thing. In the West, where they promote pornography, that's about the sexualization of women. And in the Islamic world, where they cover women up, up from head to toe, that's also about the sexualization of women. So it's basically the same thing, and it's to achieve the same purpose, the sexualization of women, the domination of women, and the maltreatment of women. But the Christian practice of reverence and respect for the Blessed Virgin Mary is to give us awe and respect for that woman in particular 
and for all women in general. The next topic we get to is polygamy. And Muslims say you can't condemn polygamy. Uh, there were people in the Bible who practiced it. There was King David and there was Abraham and there was a few others. But here's the thing. Whenever polygamy was practiced in the Bible, it led to misery. It led to jealousy. It led to rivalry. It led to the fracturing of families. It led to Joseph's brothers throwing him down a well then selling him as a slave because of the toxic uh, family environment it created. And polygamy creates a society where every woman can get married, but masses of men miss out on getting a wife. The reason why polygamy has been banned in many societies is not to protect women, it was actually to protect men. So it leaves lots of lonely, horny bachelors who are promised 72 virgins if they die fighting in a jihad. And that's why there are so many men in the Muslim world who volunteer for suicide missions. They live in a world with sand everywhere, where all the women are covered in veils, and they're told it'll get much better and you'll get 72 of these women if you die in a jihad. Now, societies that create more men than women, or more single men than single women, are recipes for a disaster, and they have terrible social problems. And what does this is polygamy, or female infanticide, or selective abortions. Uh, and China, which is not a Muslim country, but due to selective abortions and favouring of boys, and India to some extent as well, have got millions more men than women. So this is not just an attack on Islam, this is an attack on polygamy in general, as well as anything else that causes an imbalance in the, the gender uh, ratio. And this is what happens to a society where that happens. It, it leads to great encouragement and incentive to war. If a man lives in a country like China and he realises there are millions more men than women, the best way to even up the sex ratio is to, is to go to war. And it achieves two things. Lots of the men in that country die, so it's less competition for the men that survive. And through conquest, their nation gets stronger. It also reduces men's lives as expendable because men then are keen to see other men die. And then it reduces the value of women as persons, but it increases a woman's value as property or a commodity. And so it leads to a lot of sex trafficking of women and forced prostitution and rape and sexual harassment becomes a massive problem. And it's not just Islamic societies, but anywhere that does this sort of thing has these problems. In America, in some of the rural communities, 
there is the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. It's a splinter group of Mormons that practice polygamy. And what they do in these societies is, is they have an epidemic problem of inbreeding and are therefore a high level of babies dying. And due to the men that run these societies want to have all the women for themselves, they dump a lot of the young boys on the side of the road and just leave them as homeless boys to fend for themselves. These are the ugly things that polygamy causes or it causes the people in these communities to prey on women in other uh, communities. And that's why in Egypt a lot of Muslim men abduct and kidnap Christian women. The Christians practice monogamy, but the Muslims don't. So there's an excess surplus number of single Muslim women praying out and looking and, and chasing after single women, even if they've got hijabs and burqas on. And in Bangladesh, Bangladesh is both a Muslim country that has polygamy and it also has female infanticide. Well, 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 what do you have in that? In some of the lower stratas of society, in some parts of Bangladesh, single men outnumber single women a hundred to one. And many of the women get acid thrown on their faces if they reject the advances of a man. And I once saw a heartbreaking news segment of a group of women in Bangladesh who had suffered that fate. And they, they had this little factory where they were weaving clothes because that was the only way they could eke out an existence with such horrors. And my question is, should we live in a society where every man and woman can find someone or where one man can have ten wives and nine men will miss out? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 2 says, But because of sexual immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So that's God's plan. God's plan is for one man, for one woman. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 30, Paul the Apostle said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I think that's a far better way than the, the Islamic vision of women. Thank you for listening. Bye.